Morning. Um, Nick sends her love. She's over at Marley Hill um, helping with the kids um, over there. And um, I had a fantastic time last week. Um, I was preaching over there and it was just a hoot. So um, we are one church in different places and, um, and that's a, a joy to be able to go and hang out with a whole other group of people. Um, I encourage you, if you're ever at a loose end on a Sunday and you think, I want to change, why don't pop over to Marley Hill and meet some other members of this church. Um, as Lucy said, we are journeying through a series called The Church Jesus Would Build. I think over the years, we've probably done this series maybe three or four times over the 16 years, just as a moment to kind of reset, to remind ourselves what it is the church should be. And... Um, we often talk about the dream that God gave us specifically for this church. And um, to start this morning, I'm just going to remind us of the second floor of the dream, for the, which is the vision for this church. Um, and it says this, the second floor of the building, this three-story building we saw in the center of Newcastle, was full of people worshipping. They were worshipping Jesus with their hearts, all of their hearts. There was a real sense of just complete surrender people giving their whole lives to Jesus. And all around this room in the dream were these big windows, and these big windows were wide open. <clears throat> and out of these windows were waves, and as they touched down all around the region, these lights were coming on all over the place. And I remember talking to Jesus about that and saying, what, what are those lights coming on? What are those waves? And he just said, as people are filled with my spirit. As people worship my name and I fill them with their spirit, I'm going to send them out. And those lights coming on are people coming to know me for the first time. And then that was kind of the end of the dream. In the dream, God gave this church a clear call to mission. The mission to serve those in need, and John did a phenomenal job last week of unpacking the ground floor that we are to be a compassionate church. But also the mission to help people discover Jesus for the first time. You know, in the top floor of the dream, you know, we see this. We see people full of the Holy Spirit who are surrendered worshippers, who go beyond this gathered environment or the gathered environment at Marley Hill or tonight at Revive or the new kind of South Shields gathering, go beyond those places to become scattered servants, extending the kingdom and leading people to Jesus. You know, our mission is clear. We are to extend the kingdom of God. We are to demonstrate the love and compassion of Jesus through practical acts of kindness, through signs, wonders, and miracles, and through the preaching and sharing of the gospel, which leads to salvation. But having said all of that, the question that popped into my head while I was writing this talk is, why mission? You know, why does this matter so much to every single person in this part of the world? Why does it matter so much that Jesus made his mission the center of the dream that he gave us back all those years ago? And I think to understand the why of mission, we need to understand the missional context. We need to understand the journey of humanity. So we're going to take a whistle-stop tour through the whole of the Bible. 
in two hours. Um, no, actually only 30 minutes. Um, and we're going to make eight stops. And hopefully at the end of it, we're going to have a better understanding of why mission is so important. So the eight stops are these. Creation, the fall, the law, the savior, the cross, the resurrection, eternity, and judgment. So should we pray quickly because I might need it. Um, Father God, I just thank you so much that you showed us the church you wanted to build that you church you are building today. And so as we look at these eight stops along your story, along the story of humanity, would you help us understand why mission is important and why all of these are important to us? So have your way, Holy Spirit, this morning. So should we start at the beginning? Number one, creation. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. King David wrote this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Now, to understand the importance and significance of the mission of the gospel, we must understand whose, whose the earth is and all, whose all of creation is. I have um, our back garden you know, has a number of trees in it, and I love sitting in my back bedroom and looking out over that garden. And we have this willow tree, and this willow tree just blows in the wind. It's just kind of, and it's so relaxing, and it's so beautiful. And as I watch it, I often reflect that all of this beauty, all of this creation, it all belongs to God to Jesus, all of creation and all who live in it belongs to God. We exist because we were created by God. We are not a random collection of atoms. We are not the conclusion of millions or billions of evolutionary mutations that somehow led to this unique and wonderfully complex organism that we call human beings. So as some of you know, um, I have a PhD in biology. I'm a little bit out of date, I'm not going to lie. But I have looked at plants at the cellular level. And um, I kind of tell you, they are amazing. If you look at a single cell and the insides of a cell, the complexity, the beauty, the utter genius of plants and animals and human beings is just breathtaking. At uni, I would sometimes be asked, how can I believe in God? And my answer would often be, how can you not believe in God? How is it possible? How is it easier to believe what, the, what physicists call an anomaly, which is the Big Bang? That it gave rise to the Earth, which then kind of developed water, then this primeval soup, and then somehow in that stuff, cooked up a single-celled organism. Then somehow, that single-celled organism mutated and mutated and then fused a few things together and then it created a little bit more complex organisms. And then they continued to mutate and mutate and mutate to more and more complex organisms um, until we kind of get to a place where we have a male and a female of a species. I don't know whether you've ever thought about this. Maybe it's just my m mind, I don't know. But have you ever thought about 
how did the first sexually reproducing organisms actually have sex? How did they kind of evolve to a point where there was a male and a female, and that they were actually able to make babies together? Have you ever thought about that? How, you know, what are the chances? I mean, I know we're probably getting some sort of weird science debates if we got into it, but at the very core, sexually reproducing organisms need a male and a female to reproduce. How did that evolve without a designer, without a creator? Have you ever thought about that? I heard a speaker once say to me, well, once all of us, but he, I particularly remember it. If I took a watch, I got a sledgehammer, and I smashed it into thousands of little pieces. If I put it in a box, filled that box with water, buried it for a million years, if I was to say to you, when I open this box, there's going to be a watch, you'd look at me and think, you're mad. That can never happen. That's impossible. And yet, so many people believe we exist because of a random load of events. And here we are. It's just not possible. The very start of our understanding of why mission has to begin with an understanding that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We exist because he made us. Everything exists because he created it. Number two, the four. So let's get back to the finished creation. It was perfect. As um, God said about human beings, it was very good. Very good. Adam and Eve walked freely with God in the Garden of Eden with the mission to subdue the earth and to reproduce. We read this in Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. <clears throat> but then the story takes a terrible twist. The Achilles heel of humanity strikes with one simple moment of deceit from the devil. Did God really say? So the eight of the apple of knowledge of good and evil, believing they would become like God. Genesis 3.5 says this, For God knows, this is the devil speaking to Adam and Eve, that when you eat in your eye, when you eat from... Let me try that again, shall we? For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here lies the heart, the problem at the heart of humanity. We believe that we are God. Why can't so many people accept creation and rather believe this far-fetched idea that we exist out of just pure chance? I wonder if it's because we can't comprehend that we are not God and that there's a power bigger than us. You know, it's the lie at the very center of humanity and it's the lie at the very center of so many people's mindsets. We are God, therefore we don't need Jesus. 
So when we look at the crux of the brokenness of our world, it is born out of rebellion. Just like Adam and Eve, rebellion against the ways of God. So anyway, we pick up the story. God kicks out Adam and Eve out of the garden, and death and sickness and more enter humanity's reality. Human beings did multiply and did start to subdue the earth, and God, being so utterly loving and gracious, gave through Israel the law a second chance. So number three, the law. I can never say this word right, so I'm going to give it a go. The Pentateuch, is that right? Does that sound right? The five books, first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're the books of the law, and they were given to the nation of Israel. In simple terms, Israel was given the rules and the laws by which, if they could live, then they would live a pleasing life to God. And it covered everything. If you've ever read them, it's pretty detailed. But then there's the Apostle Paul. Now, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. And so he was a member of this ancient Jewish sect, which was distinguished by strict observance of the traditions and written law. And he says this in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, for all the rules and for all the guidance from all the laws, Mankind, humanity, could not live up to the standards required. Human beings always sinned, always rebelled against God's best for their lives, God's standards. And Paul knew this. He had been on the other side of the fence. He had seen the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And also knew that if people who had the law fell short of the glory of God, then what chance does anyone else have and he knew that the wages of sin is death. The law was not the answer. Human beings could not save themselves by being good enough. So God's plan continued. The Father knew that the only way people would be saved, forgiven, and receive eternal life was via a Savior, was via Jesus. So number four, the Savior. Back to Romans 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew or Gentile, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Context is really important when we read the Bible. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. See, God made all things perfect in creation. It was all very good. But mankind, humanity rebelled. And in the garden, they ate of the forbidden fruit. They disobeyed God, and, and so came the fall. And because of the fall, sickness and death enters the world, enters humanity. But God, being abounding in love, gave humanity another opportunity to be made right with him. He gave the law. But again, human beings failed to live 
obedient and honoring lives. And so the law, rather than saving them, passed judgment on their rebellion. The only answer was a savior, was Jesus the Son, God himself, Emmanuel. Invite everyone to Christmas, guys, because that's when they get to hear of Emmanuel. Now, through the grace and mercy of Jesus, everyone who believes can be made right with God, made righteous, not through actions, but through faith in Jesus. And this is wonderful news, but it's even more spectacular as it's for everyone, for Jews and non-Jews, Gentiles, for me and for you. God the Father sent the Son, Jesus, to be an atonement for the sin and rebellion of all humanity. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And that leads us to the cross. Galatians 3, this is from the message. Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating, cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Do you remember the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? That is what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse and at the same time dissolved the curse. And now, became, and now because of that, the air is cleared and we can see that Abraham's blessing is present and available for non-Jews. We are all able to receive God's life, his spirit, in and with us by believing just the way Abraham received it. You see, our sin and rebellion has a price tag on it. <clears throat> if you like, all that we do that is outside of God's kingdom, outside of his rule and his reign, outside of his values, we would call it all sin. And that sin has a price. The Bible says it has a curse. And that price is death. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The price of our sin has to be paid. The wages of death have to be paid. And so Jesus took all of our sin, all of our rebellion, onto the cross, onto himself, when he was nailed to a tree. You know, if we believe Sorry, he was nailed to a tree and he bled and died in our place. Now, he paid all the debts for our sin. All of it. He atoned for our sin. There is a check that Jesus has written for each of us. And that check is the cost of our sin. It is written and it's there for each of us. And all we have to do is accept the check so that our debt can be paid. That's what was achieved on the cross. The debt was paid once and for all. But we have to accept it. We have to receive it. You know, how remarkable is it that God himself, even though humanity had ignored him, rebelled against him, disobeyed,
disobeyed him and dishonored him. How amazing is it that he decided that he loves us so much that he would do this? John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. All we need to do is say sorry, is to repent, which means turn to Jesus, and the debt of sin is paid forever. But here's the the next part of the good news. Death was not the end. And so number six, we have the resurrection. Acts 2.24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. See, Jesus lived a perfect life. He did not sin. He never rebelled against God, and yet he chose to die, to take our place, to, to pay the price of our sin. The devil thought he'd won. I, I imagine the devil and, and the demonic forces kind of having a little party. Yes, we've killed the Savior. But death was no match for Jesus. God the Father raised him to life. And in doing so, made it possible for all that believe in Jesus to be raised to life and receive eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth with God. See, resurrection and eternal life was the inheritance Jesus received when he was raised from dead on the third day. And we read this, Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are children then we are heirs, heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So it leads us to number seven, eternal life. You know, if we believe in Jesus, if we repent of our sin, if we choose to turn and follow Jesus, make him Lord of our life, then we too will receive eternal life with Jesus. That's amazing. But, and, and this is a really important but, every human being will have an eternal destination. For those that believe in Jesus, heaven awaits. For those that don't, then terrifyingly, hell awaits. This is Jesus teaching in Matthew 5. You have heard that it is said, was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in her heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. See, Jesus had a clear understanding of hell that it was real. And it was the destination for those whose sin had not been atoned for. For those who had not invited Jesus into their life. So after it all, the creation, the fall, the law, the savior, the cross, the resurrection, eternal life, comes a moment of judgment for each and every one of us. Number eight, the judgment. No, we will all stand before Jesus and give an account for our life. It is unavoidable, whether we believe it 
or not. It is unavoidable. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You see, our story, every person in this region's story, is the same as that of Adam and Eve and all of those people we read through the pages of the remarkable book we call the Bible. And when we, all, when we boil it down, we all have a choice in our life. You know, to follow Jesus, to follow God, or to rebel and live a life of disobedience and sin. But Jesus will judge our life. He will look at our heart, the true state of our heart. It will all be laid bare before him. There will be no hiding, whether that be behind religion or or good actions. No, Jesus will look beyond the superficial. And he will see whether we truly believe. Whether we have truly repented of our sin and rebellion. You know, he knows we can't save ourselves. We all sin and fall short of the glory of Jesus. He will look at our hearts to see whether we know our sinfulness whether we have embraced our flaws and failures, and whether we have recognized our desperate need of salvation. He will look and see if we have taken our sin to the cross, whether we have cashed in that check, whether our debt has been paid. And he will do this for everyone. Our friends, our family, our neighbors, our work colleagues, everyone will stand before Jesus and face judgment. That will happen either when Jesus returns or when we leave this life and step into eternity. The question is, which eternity will we, our friends, family, neighbors, work colleagues, even random people we meet, what eternity will they face? Heaven or hell? See, God is love. He loves us so much. He loves us so much that he sent his son to pay the price for our sin, to make a way for each and every one of us to be saved. However, we all have to choose. It is free, but it requires us to accept it to truly repent of our sin and to turn our lives away from rebellion and follow Jesus. See, our life depends on it. Our eternity depends on it. We have a loving God. We really, really do. But we also have a God who is just. Our loving God has made a way for us all to be saved. He could not have done any more for us. But our just God will examine our lives and see if we have taken hold of the grace and mercy of Jesus. So let me finish with that same question. Why mission? Why mission? Why should we, as followers of Jesus, live our lives on mission? Demonstrating and communicating the kingdom of God and the gospel. Why? Why mission? Why should we always be ready to give an account for our faith? Always ready to tell someone about Jesus? Always ready to explain the gospel and to lead someone to Jesus? Why should we be on mission? 
You know, why should we take the Great Commission so seriously? Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go all over the world. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. For me, the answer is simple. Do we love people enough to want their eternal destination to be heaven with Jesus? Do we understand that every single life belongs to God, the earth and everything in it? Do we understand that for all the rebellion, all the sin, God has still, because of his great love, mercy, and grace, made a way for us all to be saved? If we do understand this, then we must understand what is at stake. If we as followers of Jesus don't take up the call to mission, the call to push back the schemes and the lies of the devil and to extend the kingdom of God, if we do not take hold of that call, if we don't, and most importantly, take hold of the call to help people as many as possible, to repent and believe in the hope that Jesus offers. Then they will never hear the gospel. They'll never know that there is an alternative to the life they lead. Life in Yard Church. God gave us a dream where we are on mission. And that mission was the very core for our existence. He has set us apart to be a people that demonstrate and communicate the gospel. A people that do not rest until we see all around us people coming to know Jesus and receiving forgiveness and eternal life. Ephesians 5, verse I think it's maybe more than verse 14, but it's from the message. Don't waste your time on useless work, mere busy work, the barren pursuits of darkness. Expose these things for the sham they are. It is a scandal when people waste their lives on things they must do in the darkness where no one will see. Rip the cover off those frauds and see how attractive they look in the light of Christ. Wake up, you sleeper your sleep. Wake up from your sleep. Climb out of your coffins. Christ will show you the light. So watch your step. Use your head. Make the most of every chance you get. These are desperate times. The church Jesus would build is a church on mission. A church that understands the why of mission. The gravity of the mission. A church where every single follower of Jesus makes the most of every chance they get to demonstrate and communicate the gospel and to lead people to Jesus and to eternal salvation.